Hi everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department Podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their work, the lessons they've learned, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is New York Times bestselling artist and author, Rachel Ignatowski. How do you illustrate a piece that is meant for the masses and is specific to the individual? How do you achieve the general familiar? Rachel explains. Among the topics, Rachel and I look back on how she set up shop in the children's book world. We discuss why you should probably stop breaking promises to yourself. And we talk about AI as, quote, thought labor abridged and what illustrators can do to stay way ahead of it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I heard you came back from San Diego Comic-Con. I mean, just came back. Yeah, we um, had our own booth this year with all of our books and art prints. And we do this special thing where we bring out our vintage computers from our personal collections. So we bring a 1984 Macintosh and also a 1977 Commodore PET. And we like load them up with games. So like Missile Command's playing on like the Macintosh and we have Space Invaders on the PET and people come up and like they play with them. The real kicker is, then we go, oh, and I wrote this book about the history of the computer. Then they buy the book. (laughs) There it is. There's the secret. Not even the first 30 seconds that we've already. So everyone tabling at any conference, just have a video game console and a television, and they will come in droves. And then you sell them the literature. See, you know, when their kids are playing video games for like a good five minutes while they're perusing, it's the guilt. It's the guilt of entertaining their child for free that gets them. Genius. I understand that you worked at Hallmark for four years. I did. Um, That was my very first job out of college. I actually started working for them while I was in college. It was my junior internship. I would say that it was definitely especially back then, back in like 2010, it was like a little bit of like the surrealist dream job where it's Christmas all the time and there's literal cookie buffets and you get to draw flowers and like train with master illustrators, which were their title at the company. I turned 21 while working there. Um, And I also was like convinced them to give me freelance while I finished up my senior year in art school. So that was a little trick I pulled and then they just called me up and was like, as long as you graduate, you're hired. So I moved by myself to Kansas City as soon as I graduated school and had a job waiting for me, which is really lucky when you're in the arts. Sure. And you went to Tyler here in Philly. I did. Yeah. Tyler School of Art. It's part of Temple University. And Did you like it there? Oh my God. Yeah. I loved it. It was one of the most intense experiences of my life because it's such a competitive and small program. And it's also one of the, I found one of the best schools on the East Coast if you're interested in print design, or at least it was then when I was going. And I got to train with some really amazing print designers like Paul Keppel and and who runs like headcase design. Mm-hmm. And it was just really wonderful getting to learn how to build books from the ground up in a program that really gave you the flexibility to kind of do what you want with it. One of the things you said was that you cut your teeth 
as a professional designer at Hallmark. What did you learn from Hallmark while working there that you've maybe carried with you to this point in your career? There is this concept there that people talked about a lot, which was how do you make something that is for everyone, but it feels super specific to the individual, mm-hmm. like who's receiving it. Right. Man, I'm trying to remember the term that they had for it back then. I'm trying to think. Um, but it's this sort of how to make art for everyone, but still have it feel completely personal. Learning how to create card product, which is basically selling paper, which is right. then essentially if you know you want to talk about business and the arts, it's just printing money when you sell paper. Right. So when I make my books, which are extremely different from the kind of work that I did at Hallmark, right. it's educational, it's based in science literacy, I do try to get that general familiar, that was the term for it, I try to get that sort of feeling on each page of my books. Mm-hmm. So um, when the reader reads it, they go, oh my God, this was made just for me. This is my favorite thing. How, mm-hmm. did, how did this person make a, a book that has something that just makes me feel so strongly in it? But then how do you, get, how do you replicate that for a general audience? Do you have any boxes you know need to be checked in order to accomplish that? Or is that like secret sauce stuff that you're not going to divulge? You know, some of it's just a feeling while you're working. But a lot of it is really trying to understand your audience and what makes them feel passionate about a subject. So, you know, I write books about women's history. Mm Mm-hmm. It's very easy to do it in those types of books, like women in science, women in art, women in sports. And by doing that, I kind of try to find little facts about each of the women that could be relatable on a deeper level. Like, um, example, Edith Clark, who was the very first female electrical engineer, she was also dyslexic. And by kind of illustrating a fun fact like that, there's going to be a dyslexic reader who sees that, who goes, oh, I see myself in this person. Mm -hmm. So kind of, that's very easy. When you talk about broader topics like what's inside a flower, which is a book for elementary school readers that follows sort of the biology that's in your own backyard. We follow the life cycle of a flower. Mm -hmm. I kind of do it by putting my own personality as much into the work as possible, whether it's putting like a smiley face on a worm (laughs) or just like kind of using um, my skills as a graphic designer to layer as much information as possible. So even though um, you can interact with the page kind of how you want at your own speed, whether you're a kid in pre-K or an adult reading it to a child, Mm -hmm. you can get something out of it that you'll go, huh, I didn't know that. And sometimes just teaching is how you can reach someone on a personal level. Did you think back then when you were doing cars with, I don't know, dogs on them going, hey, look at you, you turned 21. I don't know what kind of cars you were doing. But when you were (laughs) doing those kinds of cards, um, did you ever think back then that eventually you'd become a New York Times bestselling illustrator and author And that your first book, Women in Science, would spend 90 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. 90 weeks. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that maybe isn't like the most humble, but especially at 21, yeah, I, I like, did think, yeah. yeah, that was the goal. Like that was the goal since I was 15, and I had laser focus on it. So like even though like Hallmark was definitely a dream job. I knew even when I was working there that it wasn't my personal dream. And I was very aware of that. And I was also aware that I was kind of like taking up space where I was like, you know, I'm at this company, I have this fantastic job, but I'm definitely going to be moving on from this company. I, I even gave myself a little time limit while I was working there for just me personally, where I was like, you know what, by five years, uh, I'm going to leave. I actually ended up doing it in four years. And a lot of it is thanks to the freelance work that I was doing on the side, right. which like was, yeah, posters. And then uh, because I was doing posters about topics that were so different from what I was doing at the card factory, um, which is just kind of what we called Hallmark, um, I was doing stuff about human anatomy and I started doing Psycom. I started receiving these really great freelance jobs from, you know, pediatric cancer research foundations. And um, I did a project actually with a Holocaust documentary mm -hmm. um, where I got to really flex these muscles of organizing dense, complicated, scary information in new ways. All the while I was at home just writing lists of all the different book ideas that I would have right. and how I was going to obtain that. I knew that doing a book wasn't the correct thing to do until I found someone to pay me for it mm -hmm. because it takes up so much time. Right. So Especially instead, the kinds of books you do. Oh yeah. And it's like, you're going to spend all this time alone in your house, making something, hoping the world gets to see it. So instead I made posters that I knew in the back of my head would become books. And I'm like, if I can sell these posters, I can convince people to eventually give me a book deal. And, and that's exactly how it worked out. I started making more from my freelance and my shop than I did at Hallmark. And so I quit. And then very quickly after that, the offer started rolling in for a book deal. So... Yeah, I think it's okay to like kind of be a little cocky with yourself, especially when you're young. Exactly. You're not going to, you have to kind of like dream bigger than what you're even capable of to kind of push through because there's so much in the world telling you no that you kind exactly. of have to tell yourself yes. I, I'm so glad, seriously, I'm happy to hear that that's your answer because, you know, everyone has their own path, obviously. And it's, there's no like right or wrong. There's no one's, you know, not trying to criticize anybody sort of tangentially here, but sometimes where you hear the answer, if someone asks you like, Oh, you know, how did you start out? And did you think you were going to blah, blah, blah. And the answer is like, well, you know, I just kind of, I don't know. I didn't really have a plan. And then this kind of thing happened. And then I don't know. And it just kind of happened. Those answers frustrate me because it, it feels like they're leaving a lot out. And by a lot, I mean, maybe some luck, some privilege, something else that you can't just kind of like, well, I guess you can. I don't know. I'm speaking in generalities, but I've never spoken to someone directly who's actually meandered through the early years of their illustration career. Like they had an intention. And even if that, even if they didn't hit it right away or within the timeline, or maybe they went, a, they went a different way, but they were still creatively fulfilled. Great. But to to hear like the more the more sort of humble 
answer is like, oh, you know, it just kind of happened. Jeez, gosh, willikers. I prefer your answer. You know, this is what I want to do. And damn it, I did it. You know what? That's great to hear because I've noticed that people don't like to hear how the sausage is actually made. When I tell people the amount of hours that I worked to get my career started, their eyes kind of glaze over. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And like explain to them that when I was in my early 20s, it was like I was working two 40-hour jobs. But that's an investment that I made in myself. And that was like me keeping promises to myself that I made when I was like 15. Right. People don't like to hear that. They they do like to hear that it was, you know, pixie dust. And, there you go. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they like to have you dreamily go, well, I just drew what I loved and it was easy and perfect. But really, it is a lot of discipline, hard work, and really building a relationship with yourself, keeping promises to yourself that are sometimes very hard to keep. And oh, my gosh. It does require sacrifice, you know? Yep. Rachel, it's sort of dawning on me, or at least I came to a little bit of a thought, I don't know if it was a conclusion or anything, but that so much of the struggle that illustrators face comes from breaking their own promises to themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's, they say all these things, they promise that they're going to, they're going to draw every other day or promise that they're going to work harder at understanding color theory or promise that they're going to whatever. It kind of becomes normal, and then you blink, months go by, years go by, the things you want to accomplish don't get accomplished. Especially for young people. it's it, You really have to hit home that the relationship that you have with yourself is going to be the most important relationship that you build because art is such an isolating sort of job. Even when you're working in a group of, you know, a large group of people or at a company at the end of the day when you do visual arts you're going to be alone mm-hmm. actually doing the physicality of the work right. i learned really early that i had to treat my own personal projects with the same level of respect and with the same sort of scheduling that i would if it was a client And so I used to say to myself, like, I'm my most important client. If I say I'm going to get this project done, if I say I'm going to build the shop or build my website, I I would literally set due dates in my calendar and I would cancel plans to get them done like I would if it was cliented, contracted work. Mm -hmm. And by building up that trust, I know this sounds goofy, but I didn't have to like play these sorts of games with myself to know I would get the work done. Because once you build up that trust with yourself, you can actually plan out these really grand elaborate projects because you learned how to do it on small scales. And that is why I'm able to do the books that I do and schedule out these projects that take me like a year or even two years to do and mm-hmm. hit all my deadlines. Right. Because I'll, I'll look and I'll go, okay, it's Wednesday. I promised myself I would get A, B, and Z done. So I'm going to A, B, and Z. Yeah, that's about no, right. No, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, it's about right. Um, but it's like, you <laughs> Had have, you not you said anything, to. I would have totally been like, yeah, A, B, Z. Totally, man. I get that. It, that's how it goes. But it's like uh, you're never going to be able to push yourself beyond your comfort zone as an artist unless you can 
get to that first level of completing the work and completing the ideas that you said you were going to do because right. you're never going to be able to break through to like what is going to like kind of push you to another level unless you can get that stuff done related to that when we interact with strangers or anyone else outside of ourselves we don't dare to just say to their face you know what you suck you're the fucking worst but when we talk to ourselves we are very okay and it's very normal to say that kind of stuff to ourselves 20 25 times a day like improve the relationship you have with yourself and a lot of these other sort of stress points with respect to you know being an illustrator whether that's you know emotional or physical or you know be be better to yourself yeah kindness and respect it feels like really easy with your friends and it's almost like you have to have a friendship with yourself sometimes there too. You, you know, as a side note, you know what I think would be a really, really fun book for you to do? I think it would be an instant hit and a mainstay in the New York Times bestsellers list for 91 weeks. Not 90, <laughs> 91. And it is What's Inside Your Brain. It's funny that you say that because I actually do have a couple posters that do illustrate brain anatomy oh i know um especially this one that i i really like which is explains your brain in love and i show like the parts of your brain that lights up and like the different chemicals that are your brain's getting mm -hmm. flooded with when you're in love yeah. i think that's a great idea you can also dedicate parts of the book like love is you know love is part of mental health but like parts of the book could be mental health like this is what your brain does when it's depressed this is what it does when it's dreaming or playing or learning or loving. That would be awesome. I would want that book. And I'm 46. <laughs> so anyway. Well, the next two books in the series for the What's Inside series, yeah. which again, a lot of my books are written kind of like at an all ages level. So sure. I say like they go to 10 years old to like PhD level, <laughs> if you can believe it. Um, but uh, the what's inside books, those are like my pre-K to like 12 year old books. Nice. But, um, but, and so the next ones in the series is what's inside a caterpillar cocoon mm -hmm. and then what's inside a bird's nest. I know it's not as um, gooey as a brain, but I did get to illustrate for both of those. Like I got to illustrate like what's going on inside uh, a cocoon, like how yeah. the caterpillar's body turns into a soup. Literally and then also, goo. Like, yeah. Literal goo. And then doing the different development steps of how an egg develops and turns to like into a fetus, into a chick. Um, that was also just like really fun and sort of like the anatomy stuff that I've been drawing since I was in high school. Human anatomy has always been this huge um, impact on the kind of art that I make starting when I took my first human anatomy class when I was, you know, 17 in high school. So I know it's not human anatomy, but getting to draw all those gooey, gross bits yeah. for those books. Yeah. I don't know why you said brain and the immediately I was like, Goo. Goo. Yeah, slime and goo. goo. Yeah, that's all. It's. I think that's yeah. what it's made out of. I'm pretty sure. I have to double check my my notes, but I'm pretty sure yeah. that's what a brain is mostly cons mostly consists of. Just <laughs> yucky stuff. You know, you're talking about PhD. You know, one of the like much of what you do requires a great deal of research, right? And you're you, like you said, 
a year or two years. It takes time. It's one thing to research a person or a thing for like a little write-up on Instagram or something like what I do with illustrators or a blog post, something a little longer or a book, what have you. But it's another thing to actually understand the information you're gathering. And so much of what you've done focuses on science and art and the instant, not just like, this is what chemistry is, everybody, but like deeper than that, deeper levels. That, do you find uh, did you find that challenging at all? Do you find that exciting? Or are you just like so interested in a variety of things that it's all very comfortable to you? Like, where is there a challenge there for you or not? Oh, I mean, completely. It's exciting and it's challenging. Pushing yourself to grow, to learn more is part of the process of creating the illustrations. So for me, learning topics that maybe I wasn't completely familiar with example like the history of the computer i've been using computers to draw since i was seven years old um, my first computer that i drew on was actually like a mac color classic nice. at the public library mm -hmm. Love very it. cool and it's knowing the ins and outs of how to draw on a computer and using it for pretty much every aspect of my life didn't mean that i actually understood the history of the computer or really the computer science behind how it works by going through the process of learning, researching, talking with experts, I am also understanding how I'm going to relay that information to other people. And there's something that's kind of special that happens because the questions that I ask are not necessarily the same questions that someone who has a mm -hmm. PhD in computer science who's so well versed in it is going to ask. Right. And I think going through that process allows me to be able to reach different kinds of audiences with my books and give a lot of people the confidence they need to start learning about science. Yeah. People have a lot of bad self-esteem around certain topics. Science is one of them, which is really bad because every single person needs to be scientifically literate to be able to move through this world with like, you know, sure. information. Sure. But, you know, a lot of people, especially adults, they grow up and they go, you know, I wasn't good at science in school, so this is not for me. These are for the smart kids. These are for the cool nerds. I'm just going to stay in my lane and I'm not going to push myself to learn more. Right. And I'm hoping that with my books and illustrations and something as simple as putting a happy face on, um, you know, a 1984 Mac. Yeah, can't go wrong with that. <laughs> nope. Yeah, something as simple as that can give them the confidence to read and learn more. Yeah. On the outside, looking in to your career, your very well-designed website, your social presence, et cetera, it just appears as if things are going swimmingly. Like I've even seen several references to your, quote, beachside studio. I want a beachside studio. I'm jealous, Rachel. <laughs> Do you understand? Your situation sounds better than mine. You're successful. I'm not. What hope is there? I'm joking, but you know where I'm going with this. Like I, I'm, there are a lot of illustrators who, especially with like social media, where you see other people and their careers and you're like, well, look how great that is. They're successful. Therefore I won't be. There's a, there's some, there's a element of that 
in imposter syndrome and the comparison bug. I'm going to take a wild guess and say that not everything in your life through your career is wonderful all the time. That you too deal with the sort of same resistance points as any other illustrator. Fair guess or not? Yeah, I think, I think, look, I think it's like a great like Werner Herzog quote to be like, and he's talking about filmmaking where it's like, there are many trials and tribulations to being a filmmaker and nobody wants to hear about any of them. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And like, that's how I feel sometimes as an artist where, especially if when you're a successful artist, yeah, there's a lot of trials and tribulations to being an artist. It is, it is a hard go of it in a very, very demanding uh, career that there are no breaks from. No, no one wants to aren't. hear about it. I guess you guys do, though. Um. I, I love hearing about it because it proves that everyone, no matter what you see on social media, no matter what books you see on the shelves, everyone is having the same experiences. I don't care if we're talking about the you know illustrators from the 1930s, the 1960s, or today. Everyone has had the same experiences. And the more we understand that and the more we discuss that, then the less frustrated and hopeless a lot of illustrators will be. It's like, wait a minute, my favorite illustrators had the same feelings, had the same troubles and struggles as I'm having? That makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. It makes me feel like maybe it isn't me. Maybe I'm not the one doing something wrong. It's just that the system in place makes it that hard and yeah, this is a hard industry to break into. And what isn't? What isn't hard to break into? We're at a really sort of troubling turning point right now mm-hmm. in the arts, and everyone's feeling it. Whether you're successful, whether you're just starting out, where it's right now, it's very hard to get your stuff seen on social. Right. It's very hard to break through. Because, and maybe a lot of people don't see it this way, but I definitely do, is that, you know, in the early 2000s and the early teens, artists kind of had a little bit of a free lunch because the web and, you know, social media was a much easier place to navigate and have things be seen by real people. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're seeing a sort of shift back to traditional media, where social media is being taken over by large companies, mm-hmm. where it's almost like a homogeny of what you see on there. You don't really have control over what you see, and you have to pay to play a lot of money to have anyone see your stuff. Right. So this avenue that a lot of artists who are my age, and I'm 34, so in my 20s, I had access to this much freer golden age of social media this like it wasn't web 3.0 it was still like it was like peak web 2.0 where you make content and it's seen by an audience it was just the internet was just a much freer place there was blogs that would feature your stuff those blogs were run by real human beings bless those blogs bless those blogs and then like i remember a this golden moment in my career when I just started to have an Etsy shop, a real person running the Etsy blog featured my shop. That's like 
not what happens now at all. And you have to compete not only, just to talk about Etsy, you have to compete not just with other artists, but you have to compete with tons of counterfeiters mm -hmm. and uh, people who are running like actual like print shops overseas who are allowed to be on there as well, who then steal your artwork and put it on their site. And then you have to fight with Etsy about it. These are all things that every single artist is dealing with right now. It, it, it can feel really tough for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. My only advice is make sure your art is solving a problem because the people who need that problem fixed will search you out and keep making stuff even if you don't have freelance or you're not um, employed in the kind of art that you want to make. Mm -hmm. Make the kind of art that you want to make and then the freelance will follow, but you still have to put your stuff out there even if you feel like you're screaming into a void. If you find value in this podcast, please consider supporting it as a patron. Your support will help me keep the podcast on its weekly schedule. Patrons receive perks including a reusable 10% off discount code, access to dozens of patron-only episodes, opportunities to provide questions for guests, a soft enamel pin with our logo designed by me, and more. Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustration D-E-P-T. And now, back to our conversation. You posted this great quote from Rachel Carson. It feels a bit like a personal mantra of yours. She said, those who dwell as scientists or laymen among the beauties and mysteries of the earth are never alone or weary of life. I mean, it's yes. basically Rachel saying, telling all of us to go touch grass. Is Am I right there? Is, is that something that you feel... Is it a personal mantra? Is it something that you maintain in your day-to-day? -day? I've been thinking about that a lot, actually. Right now in my life, I feel more moved by nature than I do going into a museum. I, it's Rachel. And I, I do, too. It's weird. Past couple of years. Yeah, I think it has been the past couple of years. And it's been actually something that's been troubling me because I remember going into, you know, visiting the Met and feeling so overwhelmed and so moved by everything that I would just go home and want to make, 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 make. And now when I go into a museum, I just don't feel the same way as I used to when I was young. But mm. I do when I go into nature, when I look at the ocean, when I hike up a mountain and look at the view, when I'm in the redwoods, I feel incredibly moved. It's almost like I'm trying to recapture that feeling I used to have in museums. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Sometimes I think maybe it's people's behavior has changed in museums. Maybe everybody has their phone out and they're documenting it. Or maybe I'm just getting older and I know a little bit more about how the sausage is made. <laughs> and that wonderment uh, of looking at a tree that has, you know, been in this ecosystem since the dinosaurs like a redwood right. uh, i mean that that moves me yeah i do i do wonder if there's a that's a little bit of like a counterculture to the whole like everyone's on their phones and their screens and social media and it, it's you know this sort of like can i just have a, a moment completely to myself disconnect entirely from the this grind because the grind right now like you said it's it's a little nasty at the moment. It can be. It doesn't it's not entirely. And this isn't this isn't me doing what a lot of people are doing on Twitter these days, saying like, you know, I haven't really gotten any work lately. 
That must mean illustration's dead. Every, illustration's dead, everybody. And it gets like 50 billion retweets and likes. And I mean, they're incredibly reckless posts, but it's not that I'm not doing that. But what I'm saying is like, I am acknowledging that it's, I mean, there's just like a lot of bad news in and sort of around the periphery of illustration at the moment. And it, it's a little, it's a little heavy. And I think that's why I, for me, definitely, it's why it's, it's always a good idea to just get the hell out of there for just a minute, just to kind of re, reset the brain. As 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 well, we will see in your book, what is inside a brain? <laughs> well, you know what is really there's like two things I really want to touch on on what you said. The grind is real, but you also have to be very selective on the kind of work that you're doing and remind yourself who is paying your bills. Because it's very easy to go down this rabbit hole of I'm going to constantly make free stuff that gets likes on Instagram, but doesn't necessarily translate into money. You have to remind yourself that at the end of the day, as an illustrator, especially if you're a commercial illustrator, you're making products and artwork that moves people enough to separate with their dollars. And that's not likes on Instagram. So what I suggest to everyone is to really, if you, especially if you're starting out, it's so important to set up a shop and have the point of your social not to be to get shares or likes or attention because really that, that will fizzle. It's to translate into them purchasing your art that will then exist in their home in the real space, that mm -hmm. they'll look at it every single day remind themselves of you. That is so much more powerful than this endless scroll. All of that is secondary yep. to what you're really trying to do, which is get cliented work, sell your artwork, sell your ideas. It's very easy to start being like, I work full time for Zuckerberg. Don't right. don't be like that. No. Don't get tricked. Nope. Also, I heard you mention AI it can feel like very like doom and gloom when you start reading about it. Mm -hmm. This is what I've been saying to young illustrators who are concerned about AI is that whatever is going on in the art world is happening in the math world on such a grander scale. And you need to look at the kind of labor that's getting sort of redundant and also what is getting funded in the math world and see how that translates to the art world. So what I mean by that is right now, people in math academia are really feeling the hurt on AI with the jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, coding, a lot of people are using ChatGDP to help with their code. It's truncating work. Someone who was maybe very talented, who was like, I'm doing the job of 10 people. Now they're doing the job of 100 people. That's harsh. But also in the world of math academia, it seems like people don't care about proofs anymore because the AI can do the proof. They don't care how it's done, just that it's done. Right. So the kind of research that's getting funded has to be broader and more overarching. And that means that it has to be more about a general theory about, it just has to be bigger than just doing that sort of labor intensive, like nose to the grindstone like practical research science. Right. So then what does that mean in the art world? Well, it, it also means like, okay, now it's not going to cut it just doing textile design, just drawing, you know, a cute dog, drawing flowers. 
you have to do something that's even more. You have to think bigger. What is an overarching message that you're trying to portray? I've been on the sides of both of those worlds in the mm -hmm. art world where it's like literally draw a bouquet of flowers and then doing calligraphy, like happy birthday on front of it. But now I'm on like this other end of it where it's like, okay, we're, we're taking really complicated con concepts. We're organizing typography. I'm using every trick in the book. Every time I make a book, I'm pushing myself to the limit to be, for it to be the best book I've done yet. Even if it's a book about, you know, munching, crunching caterpillars in your backyard and, you know, the life cycle of moths and butterflies, I'm, I'm pushing myself to be like, how can I make this the best book I've ever done? for my audience and how do I reach that audience like even better than I did before pushing yourself is the key to beating AI because remember AI is just it's just thought labor abridged and these massive companies already had the thought labor they paid hundreds of artists to do the thought labor for them and that didn't necessarily mean that they still made good stuff so, it, right. you know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's like, if they could knock out a New York Times bestselling book every single time they made a book, they would have done it already. AI is not going to do that for them. I so totally agree with that. It's like kind of like daunting to tell these young kids, like, you're just going to have to think bigger and bolder. But also, you know, there might be like some... In 10 years, there, there's probably going to be like some like teenager in the Midwest who grew up on this stuff, who's like, who, you know, alone in his basement makes like an entire movie just like from her own ideas, you know, like it, it really does remind me of what's already happened in the music world. Sure. You know, like corn silo goths in the Midwest in like the 80s and 90s who like had MIDI on their computer and like created whole albums by themselves that they wouldn't have been able to do. Right. 20 years earlier, you know? Yeah. So maybe some cool stuff will happen um, in the next 10, 20 years as well. I hope not. <laughs> be honest. No, I mean, I no. want cool stuff to happen, but I want it to actually happen from humans. I want humans to be able to do it using human things, human built things. Um, and I don't want any theft or copyright infringement, or I just don't want what we're doing is we're, we're outsourcing our ability to think and create and we're trying to skip the step where you actually have to work at it and i don't like where that's where that could potentially go for us as a society but just for illustrators specifically i mean you're not wrong i'm more afraid about like the bridges that are going to get built like the buildings that are going to get built the stress testing on materials that are going to be used in airlines I'm more concerned about that than the art, and I know that's kind of a tangent, but that's wait, what wait, keeps wait. me you up mean at like, night. Like they'll use AI to do that stuff, and it won't be a good, or yeah, like they'll use AI to do stress testing right. on materials without really understanding what went into the secret sauce, because you know the deep learning is just a black box. Once you test a superposition, it doesn't work anymore. Well, can't we just hate all of this stuff? Can't we just be uh, concerned about all of it at once? I'm very yeah, good at not liking can. lots of different things at the same time. I, I, I'm with you. You know what? And that's why it's so important to understand 
the history behind the stuff. Sure. And also to like identify like who are the actual like good guys in the situation. So organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, who are basically the they're like the ACLU when it comes to computers and digital rights and protecting us as people who use computers. Um, understanding that there are organizations out there who are actually coming up with great solutions and better ways to sort of support organizations mm -hmm. like the EFF, even mm -hmm. as artists. Um, that's the bottom line. Yeah. And I do think like over the next few years, illustrators would do well to heed this piece of advice. Put as much of yourself, I mean, basically what you're saying, but from a t kind of a different perspective, different approach, put as much of yourself, of your own experiences into your work as, as possible. Let's see what you look like on your website. Put your, make your photograph, your avatar, put the human behind the art needs to now be front and center. It almost has to be like the first thing needs to be who you are. Look at your Instagram bios. Don't just say illustrator. AI can do that. What else do you want to say with your work? What else do you want to say about yourself? Put the human front and center right next to the art because that's, I think, what's going to help sort of stave off all of this AI stuff because I think more and more people are going to get sick of it and they're going to crave the human part of art making that's my that's my Absolutely. guess and it's also like remember like what's going on now with ai is not going to be the same thing that's going on 10 years from now with sure. ai and so if you're looking over your shoulder and being like you know what ai art it kind of sucks it, i don't like it and it's not very useful even which is how i felt kind of playing with it yeah Remember, like, that doesn't mean that it won't change in 10 to 15 years. Like, we're getting a little preview right now. Um, just like we got a preview with, like, digital cameras in, like, the early 2000s when everyone started buying their own DSLRs, but not everyone could really use them. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we started getting a hint of what was going to happen with photography. Yep. So preparing your work now, just like you said, have as much humanity but also complicated ideas, whatever that might be. Something that's just bigger than the technical side of it. Yeah. The story right. the is intention. really important. You have to intention. put as much intention into your work as you can. I mean, that's, Absolutely. that's something that AI just doesn't have. It looks okay, but then there's no intention behind any of it. There's no reasoning behind why the light is doing what it's doing. There's no why. It's just, oh, must be... it doesn't know. It doesn't no. know what it's doing. Of course not. And I just can't wait till the, I can't wait to see the day where, you know, elementary schools invite the, the dude who plugged in the words that created, you know, the AI for the children's book. And like that, think about that for a second. That's not happening. That's not going no. to be, it's the person, the illustrator. That's who the schools are going to want to see the libraries, the bookstores, that's the thing about illustration that I don't think is really, or at least I don't see it discussed much in the AI, in overall AI conversation. Illustration is as much about the illustrator as it is about the illustration. It isn't just yeah. about I'm, I'm a no name, no face, nobody making great art. 
The great art is part of the illustrator. The illustrator is part of the great art. They are not separate. Well, it's the, also the idea of happy accidents. It's like your exactly. style is your limitation. And that's always what it's been. And that's what makes your art interesting. Yep. I mean, growing up, I was never the best illustrator in my class. Going to school, I was never the best, like, drawer from life. Um, but I've always thought that talent is only half of the equation, that the other half is just kind of like vision and what you want to say and your ideas and also your ability to actually do that kind of hard work. I think yeah. that's the other yeah. 50% because I know a lot of very technically talented people who are just like, you know what, this art thing isn't for me. I'm going to go on and like, just like making stuff every day is just not for me. And they could draw like photographically from life. They mm -hmm. just had that natural talent. Yeah. That other half though of the equation is going to be more and more important. Absolutely. In the next coming two decades. My prediction, Rachel? Artists who work traditionally are going to see a huge boom over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. You wait, you can paint in oils? Oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever seen that. I want to I wanna work with an illustrator who works with watercolor and not just a 50% AI, 50% whatever digital program exists at that point. I think I traditional too. artists are going to see a huge boom. That's my prediction. I think... I think it's traditional artists. And also I think maximalism is going to come back hard, yep. like material and maximalism. Like think of like a Victorian um, matchboxes and how beautiful they are and yep. all the material that goes into that. I agree with you on that because minimalism is easy for a computer to do. Mm -hmm. And exactly. I mean, but also I think trends are going to go quicker and quicker it's going to be like a very intensely quick trend cycle in the commercial world too. But again, I'm just to go back to like the core of illustration and the core of like children's books, which is kind of like what I know the most about. Mm -hmm. It's what you have to say that matters the most. Yep. I always tell artists, try to be as much of a one man band as possible. Don't hide your light push yourself out of your comfort zone, be the writer too, be the graphic designer too, learn as much as you can about the other parts of the discipline that makes the product that you're creating. Say if you're a, a package designer, take an industrial design course, learn the paper craft part of it. So you can like think even bigger, yeah. you know, that's mm -hmm. going to be more important than ever. Yeah. What would you like to tell the illustrators and writers and designers and whoever else listening to this, what would be one last piece of advice that you'd like to say to them directly? Now, let me think about this for a moment. Okay. I've given a lot of advice already. <laughs> I'm trying not to repeat myself. Um, listen yeah. to the past 50 minutes of this episode. The end. There we go. Great, great <laughs> advice. I, honestly, like, I know this sounds corny, but you just have to do the work. And there's going to be a lot of people. This Okay, now this is a real piece of advice from like artist to artist. There are going to be people who tell you to slow down. It's very strange. It happens in the arts a lot. People 
who don't understand that the art that you're making, it's almost a compulsion. It's an extension of who you are. It gives you great joy. There's going to be a lot of people who are who tell you to slow down and take breaks. And the more successful you get, the more you're going to hear that. And I'm just going to tell you from like artist to artist and also like from women to other women out there, don't dim your light. Keep doing what you love and keep striving for bigger and bigger dreams. Don't let anyone else define what a successful artist is for you. Keep going for it. To learn more about Rachel, visit rachelignatovskydesign.com. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit illustrationdept.com for class offerings like mentorships and portfolio reviews, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, our merchandise, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.